Let's now turn to Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. We'll stop there. Let's also turn in our book of forms and prayers to the Belgian Confession, Article 17. Article 17, the recovery of fallen man. <clears throat> we believe that our good God, by his marvelous wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had plunged himself in this manner into both physical and spiritual death, and made himself completely miserable, set out to find him, though man, trembling all over, was fleeing from him, and he comforted him, promising to give him his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent, and to make him blessed. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this article uh, stands out. It's among others that, uh, that do stand out in the Belgic Confession uh, for... Uh, it's it's moving and heartwarming character. It's almost like a, a, a song, you might say, uh, a burst of melody, an outpouring of worship to our good God. And uh, though few, uh, though in few words and a rather short article, it gives a breathtaking overview of the wonderful way of God's action on behalf of needy. Uh, fallen and miserable sinners who have plunged themselves into uh, spiritual misery and death by their rebellion against God's word. And the grace of God is the theme of this this article. And uh, that grace is, is revealed in this article as a seeking grace, a promising grace, 
uh, a comforting grace, a grace that blesses. It's the grace of our good God, as the opening words indicate. In marvelous grace, God recovers fallen man. You know, in a way, that's really the theme of Scripture, isn't it? And, of course, it's a, a theme that is far too uh, far too great, far too vast to cover in a sermon, but uh, we're going to look at this wonderful outline of God's saving mercy and grace in Christ in this article before us. And we're going to begin with the consideration of the fact that uh, God is a seeking God. He seeks out the lost. That is indicated in the language of this article where it speaks of God as one who set out to find him. He set out to find him. God seeks out the lost. And that word lost is uh, its a familiar word to describe our natural condition in sin and alienation from God. Uh, it's found in Scripture. It's found in the parables that Jesus told about the lost coin and the, the lost sheep and uh, the lost son. We sing, I once was lost, but now I'm found. But of course, even a simple familiar word like that, it has to be properly understood, right? Perhaps the children could misunderstand this, as if somehow we got lost to God, as if he didn't know where to find us. And you might read this story of the fall of man, and and uh, you come across uh, verse uh, 9, where it says, The Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? As if God lost Adam, and he's out to find him, as if he doesn't know where he is. Well, that would not be true, would it? It's not that that man was lost to God, but in a sense, man became lost to himself in relationship uh, with God. He became alienated from God, distanced from him in his mind and in his and in his heart. And that was a desperate condition, a condition that this article again describes as one of of both physical and spiritual death that God had threatened. Uh, to man upon his disobedience to God's command. In fact, we understand that that death that God threatened uh, is to be understood likewise, not only in terms of physical death or a kind of spiritual alienation, but ultimately eternal death, the death of, of condemnation, the second death. That's the language that we hear from the book of Revelation to describe the eternal punishment of the wicked. Some of those dreadful consequences of sin are recorded in uh, in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve became aware of their guilt, and that's described in terms of their awareness of their nakedness. Before they had sinned, uh, they were naked. They were not ashamed. They were not self-conscious in a way that compelled them to want to cover up. You know that a kind of celebration of nudity in our day, a flaunting of nudity is really a horrible kind of rebellion against God. It's a determined resistance to the kind of natural shame that people ought to be affected with. 
in view of the fact that they are creatures exposed to a holy God. The people are insensitive to that, and they reject the thought. And a flaunting of nakedness is a kind of rebellion against the reality of the fact that man is exposed, not simply physically, but his soul and his sin is exposed to God. And that instinct, that wholesome, modest instinct to cover up in public has been obscured by a shameless kind of denial of God. They became aware of their guilt. They experienced sin, the knowledge of good and evil, in a way that uh, exposed their vulnerability to a holy God. And they became afraid. And they ran from God. In our sin, we cannot bear the presence of God. You know, this is one instance where uh, our confession uh, resorts to very vivid language and almost uh, poetic language and almost a, a little bit of imaginative language when it says that God set out to find man, though man trembling all over was fleeing from him. Now you read that account in the book of Genesis and we're told that they were afraid, but our confession wants us to see that vividly and feel something of what that dread must have involved. Trembling all over. Running from God. Fellowship with God that uh, they had known, certainly Adam had known uh when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, God had manifested himself, and it appears a customary way of fellowship with the creatures he had made. But rather than welcoming God's presence and fellowship, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, and they tried to cover up their, their shame with their own pathetic efforts to shield themselves from God. That fellowship was replaced with fear. And their alienation from God also quickly uh, uh, appeared in the way that they even related to, to one another. And that love for one another was replaced with, with uh, accusation. Adam blamed his wife. Excuses. It's a snapshot of man's lost condition, with a brief outline. And this is the condition in which God seeks man, in which God comes in grace. God set out to find him. Again, isn't that rather vivid language? It's almost like you get a picture of, uh, of rangers or, uh, you know, rescue, uh, a rescue team that becomes aware of people that are lost in the mountains in a very dangerous and desperate a condition, and they set out to find them, to rescue them here at the beginning of man's misery. At the very entrance of sin, we see God's immediate response. We see the first revelation of his gracious plan to save sinners. Here the story of redemption begins in God's action, in God's loving action towards children on the run. On the run. As God is seeking them. Can you imagine uh, these people lost in the wilderness, on the lookout, and they see their rescuers, and they run and hide 
Well, anybody observing that would say, these people have no clue of how desperate their situation is. They must have lost their mind. The cold or the deprivation of food has deranged them. They're running from their rescuers. That's our natural response, isn't it? To the seeking God. And this description of God's gracious action towards our first parent parents is a model of his ongoing gracious work. He is yet the seeking God. Salvation is by God's initiative, always, in every case. You know, there's the account in the New Testament of Zacchaeus, this little man, right? And uh, he knew that Jesus was passing by. And uh, there was a crowd of people, and because he was short of stature, he uh, was unable to look over the shoulders and heads of others and see them. So he climbed a, a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus as he was passing by. And Jesus stopped beneath that tree, and he called him by name, right? Zacchaeus, you come down. Today I'm going to your house. And this tax collector, this man with a bad reputation as a thief, he put on a big feast for Jesus. And he invited his fellow sinners. And the Jewish leaders, they criticized Jesus for eating and drinking with sinners. And remember what Jesus said? He said that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is not a story about Zacchaeus seeking out Jesus. It's a story of Jesus seeking out this wayward son of Abraham and bringing him to himself. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I who found, O Savior, true, but I was found of thee. The first motions in the heart of a sinner towards the Lord Jesus Christ are themselves the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work bringing people to seek the Savior. Without that, all we ever do is run, on the run, unless the Good Shepherd seeks us out. And uh, in our foolishness and perhaps our desire to run away from our shepherd, he picks us up and throws us over his shoulder, so to speak, and brings us home. That's the biblical imagery of our shepherd. Salvation is by God's initiative. And we are always to see then the patient and the, pers- the patience and the persistence of God in view of the obstinacy of man. And we're to see the love of God in seeking out the lost. God seeks the lost. And God promises to give his son. Genesis 3.15, where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. And the serpent, we know, was uh, a creature uh, commissioned into the service of the wicked one. That's why the devil is called the serpent. Sometimes the dragon, right? God is speaking to the devil who deceived Eve, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That verse is often referred to as the mother promise. And yes, indeed, it speaks of Eve as the mother 
the one who would become the mother of, uh, of the seed. And that's not simply a reference to all those who would indeed be uh, God's children, but it refers particularly to the seed, singular, capital S, the great, 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 great grandson of Eve, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born of a woman, as Galatians says, as our confession uh, alludes to. It's a promise of the coming of Christ. God questions Adam and Eve. That's part of his pursuit of them, right? He not only says, where are you? But when they answer and say, I I heard your voice and I was afraid because I was naked. He said, who told you that you were naked? He asked another question. And then he asks another question. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then when uh, Adam blames uh, his wife, the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? No, the Lord is talking just the same way that sometimes parents talk to their children. What did you do? In fact, I talk to my dog that way sometimes. What did you do? And immediately he or she goes like that, right? But when parents talk to their children that way, what are they doing? They're endeavoring to bring them to awareness and to acknowledge what they have done and to feel guilty for it. That's grace, by the way. God doesn't ask Satan, what did you do? There's no inquiry. God is not seeking him out. There's only words of judgment and condemnation for the devil. But he inquires of Adam and Eve. He's confronting them with their sin so that they might feel their need of mercy and grace. He asked them these questions. You can imagine how they may have trembled the way children might tremble because they might feel that a spanking is coming and they might be a little bit hesitant to admit what they have done. But God is inquiring not to punish, but to proclaim mercy to them. Yes, there are consequences for their sin, but God is seeking them out in grace the grace that promises salvation. Grace that proclaims judgment on the snake. Judgment against the devil. God's going to break up this alliance that had recently been formed. Adam and Eve had, in effect, joined sides with Satan in rebelling against his word. And God's going to break it up. He's putting enmity Hatred between the serpent and all those that are allied with him and the woman and her seed. That's a word of grace. Hostility. Not between man and God, but hostility between the serpent and the seed of the woman. And he proclaims assurance of victory to the seed of the woman. To the seed of the woman. Capital S. It says, he shall bruise the head of the serpent. Now that word bruise is used twice there in verse 15. He shall bruise your head, God said to the snake, and you shall bruise his heel. Now the the word bruise, it means uh, to break or sometimes to, to break in pieces or greatly injure or wound with respect to the head of the serpent. It ultimately involves total devastation. In fact, in the New Testament, the God of peace assures Christians 
that he would shortly bruise Satan under their feet. And ultimately that would mean total destruction. But with respect to the heel of the seed of the woman, it said he would bruise your heel. And we might ask the question, why heel? Why the contrast between head and heel? Well, the answer to that question relates to the fact that these things both took place in the same event, right? And that involves a kind of imagery that we could, we could relate to in our own imagination. The picture of, is of one crushing the head of the serpent with his heel. But in the meantime, the heel is wounded. But that's a picture of Golgotha. That's a picture of what Jesus would do upon the cross. Through death, he destroyed him that had the power of death. That is the devil, right? That's a quotation from, from Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. In the very act of crushing uh, Satan's power as if treading on his head. Yes, Christ was bruised. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't minimize, that does not take away anything from the greatness of the suffering of Christ as if it were a small thing, but rather it declares the glory of his victory and the apparent success of, of Satan in this hour, the power of darkness was only apparent. And the death of Jesus was not the victory of the, of the devil, but his defeat. Christ triumphed over him in his death. That's how, that's how Colossians, uh, describes it. Christ has disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumph, triumphing over them in it. That is in his death. So this is a promise of salvation brought out in Isaiah chapter 53 that speaks of the man of sorrows who was bruised for our iniquities. And ultimately, though Satan indeed was given a kind of free reign, so to speak, ultimately it was at the hand of the Father because Christ, the seed of the woman, willingly took upon himself the guilt and shame of our rebellion and was punished in our place. Even such that Isaiah also says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. How could the father be pleased to bruise his own beloved son? What an astounding proclamation of grace. Because it pleased the father to provide a savior and deliverer for the guilty. It pleased the father to provide a covering for man's sin. Not a pathetic covering of fig leaves that man would devise in his own self-righteousness. Genesis chapter 3 also speaks towards the end of how God made tunics of skin and clothed them. In other words, God killed an animal in order to cover their shame and nakedness. Just one of those many uh, pictures of how God would make atonement through the shedding of blood to cover the guilt of man but pictures that find their one and only fulfillment in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. He provided that covering by the sufferings of his son so as to show his great love for us in that he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And so with him will also freely give us all things. He will make us blessed.
He comforts the miserable to make them blessed. Paul refers in 2 Corinthians to God as the God of all comfort. What a precious thing. God is the one who dries tears and restores hope. God is the one who gives consolation in the face of distress and misery. You have delivered my soul from death, the psalmist says, and my my eyes from tears and my feet from falling. And the gospel proclamation to those who mourn in their need and misery is one of comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people. Comfort for body and soul. Comfort in life and in death. Comfort in time for eternity. The only comfort that we have, that we belong to God, that Christ has shed his precious blood to deliver us from all the power of the devil and obtain for us eternal blessing. God promises to make men blessed. That's the last sentence of this article. And it's kind of like the summary of uh, all the grace promised in his son. It's like uh, the most enlarged uh, explanation of that mother promise, right? Because it was not simply the promise about a mother, but it's like the mother promise in the sense that in brief summary, it, it captures the riches of the gospel. And it's like all the, all the subsequent promises of God's saving grace in Christ are just an enlargement upon that one promise that goes right to the heart of our redemption in Jesus Christ. It takes us from that first comfort that God, uh, gives when he seeks out and restores the lost all the way to the eternal happiness that is in store for all believers. The book of Revelation, we read from Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Uh, the book of Revelation is very, very rich with promises of such blessedness because we hear the words repeated again and again and again. Blessed, blessed are those. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who have part in the first resurrection. Over them the second death has no power. Blessed are those who do his commandments. They have a right to the tree of life. They enter through the gates of the city. It's like there's no ceiling. There's no end to the blessedness that God has in store for his children. Praise God, our good God, for such comfort. His wisdom and goodness are marvelous. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is also the, the Father of mercies, the cause, the origin, the fountain of our salvation, salvation rooted in his electing love before the foundation of the world a salvation that's purchased in his son, salvation applied by his spirit to God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Be glory forever and ever. Amen.